0: Hello, Tony here, and welcome to the second episode of the TSE Podcast. So, in this episode of the TSE Podcast, we're going to be talking about the making of a track written by John Bicknell, which appeared on our latest album, Where Are the Angels? And it was entitled Sweet Scented Cherry Bomb. And we'll also try to explain how we went from this.
1: I thought being clean and good was the right thing to do.
0: To ending up with this.
1: I thought being straight
2: and wise was the right thing to do. Left side I'm
0: As usual, my co-conspirators Stuart Glanville and John Bicknell joined me to discuss the making of the song Sweet Scented Cherry Bomb. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I'll see you on the other side.
2: So we're going to talk about um, Sweet Scented Cherry Bomb. John, um, first question. How did the idea for the
1: song come about? Well, um, it must have been around 2015. Um, uh, I'd I'd met Ray... And we decided to record the Drums and Wires album, and uh, and it was during the recording of the Drums and Wires album that I wrote the actual music on acoustic, just on acoustic guitar. Um, and it was originally the music for a song called um, Population Overload, which then changed to a song called Lest We Forget, which I wrote, as I say, back in about two thousand and fifteen pretty much about you know the way uh this country is going and how that like all the people that fought for us in the wars might think about you know some of, some of the current issues and stuff but i thought i don't do politics and and i wasn't happy about putting it on the album so it was kind of shelved um until um one day coming back from rays um i sat in a field on the way back and and i just thought you know, I would recently um, uh, recovered from a, an addiction, uh, and I and I kind of sat in this field, and I and I wrote the lyrics. You know, I just sat there for about an hour, listening to the birds singing, watching the trees swaying in the summer breeze, and I wrote and I wrote this totally depressing song about my uh, my experiences through addiction. And now I see the darker side. The smile turning to a sneer. I actually also recorded the demo vocals in that same field because I had a little portable 8-track machine. Yeah. Uh, so I laid the backing track down, and then I went into this field on the way down to Ray's again, uh, and I just sat on a log in this field, and I did the vocals for the demo. It's obviously, you how know, it works, isn't it? Just... Yeah, I know. Uh, but I'd had the tune in my head. Yeah. Ever, ever since I gave up music back in the, the 20... Well, it, around the millennium, I just gave up music for about 15 years. Uh, but then, you know, I saw Ray and we we decided to record the, all the old songs that we used to do. Uh, and, I, and I just thought, and I had this tune in my head and it wouldn't go away. And that was it. And then I wrote the lyrics and it was still rejected for the Drums of Wires album. Sorry, John, just
2: talking over you there. But, but just to um, reference, Ray is the drummer and... Uh, your co-sort of um, uh, conspirator in your other band, Drums and Wires. Yeah. So, kind of the next question was, why? Why did you think the song might be ideal for that Somato effect for us, rather than you know release it through your Drums and Wires?
1: Um, yeah, album. As I said, um, it was kind of rejected by drums and wires because my original demo was about seven minutes long Um, Mm -hmm. and it was a kind of mid-paced song. Um, It had, you know, I wanted a lot more for it than we could actually do as a three-piece and uh, it was kind of left by the wayside and then when me, you and Tony uh, decided to get the album together, you know, um, I thought this would be ideal because it fits the mood of the album. Because it's about serious subject, yeah. Um, it's about personal experience, uh, and uh, thankfully you were uh, latched onto it. Uh, m- me and Tony did a demo before you uh, even heard it, uh, yeah, and we cut it down from uh, seven minutes to about five minutes because uh, I think you were uh, kind of got separated the wheat from the chaff and chucked out a couple of verses and some repeat choruses. As I say, between us, we decided on the epic ending that it ended up with. Well, we're going to come to that in a minute. I I guess the the next
2: question really is, uh, you know, once you just sort of decided that you wanted Tony to produce the track for, for the band for so That Somato Effect, did you have a vibe or a sort of sound in, in your mind regarding how, how the track, how the song should... You know be
1: yeah kind of because um it was written about um a period in my life where uh, i was kind of uh, indulging in uh mind-altering substances and stuff and uh and it kind of uh, made itself into a kind of mid-paced psychedelic type feel song um yeah. and i do remember the original demo and and when that middle eight section work drops down to the E minor, I mean it's a classic Floyd trick, um, and, and the Beatles as well, you know. And I and I kind of asked Tony to uh, to think about that and listen to maybe something like Sergeant Pepper's and um and see what he could do with it because I wanted that psychedelic vibe to it. And and I, yeah, Tony Tony knows the rest because he knows what he did after that well it, it leads perfectly onto the next
2: question Again, i'm going to jump jump on to uh to the question to you tony um cherry bomb has a more i you know we all felt it on the album it has a more traditional sound than the other tracks on on the album so from your perspective where did the inspiration for the musical feel of the song come from
0: well, that's a good question. I, t- I took the, the lead directly from John because um, he mentioned that he wanted a 60 psychedelic feel to it. And then he mentioned Sergeant Peppers. No, he mentioned Strawberry Fields. So we all know what that typical Mellotron sound sounds like from Strawberry Fields. So I remember that uh, it was quite funny because I used Studio One from my main software and all the virtual instruments there didn't actually have a Mellotron. So I had to come out of studio one and then use logic pro x and they have a very very good Melotron simulation or virtual instrument really yeah so i recorded that and then i had to export had to import the video back into the studio one session but yeah and and that was the main inspiration um john said i wanted it to sound psychedelic so really i thought strawberry fields forever um it's funny, I don't know a lot of song from that area that is so-called psychedelic, bands like The Move, etc. I'm not really too familiar with their work, but um, I have kind of some idea of what psychedelic music is supposed to sound like. So, um, and then it really just went from there. I, I do remember actually somebody suggesting there should be a harpsichord, which um, I think you can just about hear in the mix, um, should also be included. And I thought that the harpsichord would give the whole
1: song this that was sense actually of Englishness. your suggestion, Tony.
0: Yes, somebody suggested a harpsichord. Um, so it, it's kind of playing in there as well. So I went for, for two choral sounds for that middle eight section. I had the sort of staccato chords, just playing the steady sort of um, two four two four, if you like, rhythm using, um, using the Mellotron. And then I had another Mellotron sound, which was just playing block chords. I can't remember whether it was uh, at the same pitch or, you know, which is slightly higher or lower register, but that formed the main part of the middle eight. And then uh, I'm not very good at playing guitar, but then I remember we ought to have a guitar solo here. And then I really just used a preset that I found and modified it from another piece of software. And it just had all these typical sort of long echoes and delays, um, very little distortion. Um, it wasn't the kind of song that needed sort of in-your-face heavy metal distortion. Um, and I came up with this kind of dreamy sort of wandering guitar solo. Um, and I think that was it for that middle-eight section. I don't think we added no, too it much. Not
1: definitely worked it was there was originally uh, originally stuart sang uh, the vocals over that first part of the middle eight section so yeah to give uh, the the instrumentals some space and people to hear that kind of dreamy psychedelic vibe you know
0: yeah, the, vo- the, the vocal did repeat itself. Um, I think there's uh, like two parts of that middle eight section and um, it did repeat itself. And I think I suggested that um, that it probably just repeating it probably didn't actually bring anything no. No, to did. the song. And I think I, I think yeah. we dropped that. So it just has a middle eight section with the, with the lyric and then just leaves it instrumental before it breaks into the next verse. So Stuart, I had a question for you. Um, as this song was actually not written by yourself, what were your first impressions of the song when you first well, heard it?
2: It's interesting this because John didn't give me any idea about what the song was about lyrically, what it was about. So I just I I took the the lyric I got from John. The first time I listened to it, I thought my immediate impression was it's about some girl, someone that he, you know, was close to. And on about the second or third listening, I suddenly thought, no, nah, this isn't about a girl because I, I didn't know what cherry bomb was. I didn't know it was a drug of, of sorts. But after about two or three listens, I thought, no, nah, this is this is more serious than that. This is about a drug, and I, I remember I remember on texting um, you guys on the chat and saying, John, this is about drugs, isn't it? And and he said, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then the story came out that that obviously it was inspired by you know a pretty bad experience and a bad time for John in his life so yeah um that was my first impression then my second impression was listening to it i thought it sounded quite Beatlesy, and i thought yeah i quite like this but i um, not sure whether i'm going to be able to do anything with it that's going to add value and improve it so yeah that that's my that's my answer to that yeah
0: i actually do um uh, uh i remember the first time i heard the song it was um john you sent me a demo yeah of some songs that were going to be on drums and wires and there were lots of songs uh that were on that demo that i thought were particularly good um and i remember cherry bomb and exactly like Stuart, i thought yeah this is going to be another story of love lost and i literally thought that i had this image in my mind of this woman this cherry bomb somebody obviously who's voluptuous and had long flowing blonde hair um and that's exactly how I saw it. and when you came up with the story yeah, oh, and when you came up with the story about drug addiction, I was kind of thought, "Wow, I just didn't see it that way." Shows you how much of a useless lyricist yeah, kind of, I would be I kind at the end of I kind of the
1: disguise day. most of my songs as love songs, you know. Always have done. You know, I, I like them to be ambiguous, and that kind of um, uh, and and yeah, yeah, I can understand how that could be mistaken as a love song, but it was a kind of love hate relationship that I had with uh, that substance that I. Had a bad time with. I mean, it all dates back to the two tens, the twenty tens, when uh, there was a lot of people like myself who who'd grown up as uh, failed young pop stars and have uh, turned into aging old wrinkled pop stars. And um, and and you know, I've always had a problem with addictions. You know, I'm I'm currently addicted to the uh, uh, gherkins, but. I but I've always, had, I've always had to watch myself because I think a lot of creative people have that problem, you know. Uh, I, tend to go, I tend to go into um, black periods where, uh, where I can't reason really or judge what, what I'm doing with myself. But anyway, it was a bad experience. I came out of it and I felt that I wanted to write some lyrics that could maybe help other people as well that had been through the same experience. Um, and it turned into that kind of um, very, very personal heart-on-sleeve song. You know, I I bared my soul with with that one. Stuart, of course, he got hold of the lyrics, edited them down and um, cut the wheat from the chaff and, uh, and added some of his own style to the song, which, in my opinion, turned out absolutely fantastic, and I don't think it could have been done better. That's kind of you to say thought well, this could have been an anthem, a bit like um, I Will Survive is
0: an anthem for one reason or another. I just suddenly had this yeah. image in my mind, as, uh, you know, you go to these over 50s and over 60s parties, and your song could have actually been an anthem for men who loved and lost. And I just see it playing in the background, you know, and all these sort of hundreds of over 60-year-old men singing sweet cherry Bomb." No, I mean, it's a very subtle lyric. I mean, there's the genius in that. I guess I don't write any lyrics, but I thought there was a bit of a genius touch. And I had this light bulb moment went off when you explained that it was actually a song about yeah, drug addiction. I mean,
1: t- t- Tony, t- just on a related note, you might want to edit this out, but uh, the uh, Drums and Wires album that you've recently remastered, um, the song probably also sounds like a love song, but that that is also about another addiction, which is. Uh, my struggle with alcohol over the years. Um, you know, it is, it is dressed up as a love song, but if you go back and listen to it, knowing that, um, you'll see it in a different light. And, and it's the same with a lot of my songs. Yeah.
0: How do you actually get the courage? I wouldn't say the courage, but I would find it very difficult to write something personal that happened to me, even if it wasn't the third person. Hold on. Um, how do you actually make that leap... And maybe Stu, you've got some thoughts. How do you make that leap? Because you're really uh, just bearing your soul
2: um, on a piece of paper and then putting it to music. I, I, I can, I would say straight away that absolutely everything I write is from personal, pretty much from personal experience and my my angle and my view on the world. And the next podcast we do, which will be about uh, the song "I Can See Your Face," is intensely personal. I won't go into it now, but but absolutely, it's about something that happened to me, which. Uh, doesn't happen to many people, but we'll talk about that some other time at the next
1: yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. We, we, I mean, at our age, we write from the heart, don't we? Yeah, heart on, heart on sleeve.
0: No, I, 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 I wrote this question down, but I, I think it's actually, um, again, not being able to sing and not writing any lyrics. Um, I just wondered, Stuart, what, what are the differences when you're performing someone else's song? I mean, you've played in many bands. You write your own lyrics with pillow fights back. Um, Are there any sort of particular challenges, you know, like when you're having to interpret someone else's song, someone else's idea, that's different from writing for yourself?
2: Actually, do you know what? I find, I found, and I've always found it quite liberating and, and quite enjoyable to sing and to come up with, if I'm allowed to, to come up with ideas for other people's songs. In my early days of learning to be a singer and so on, Late '80s, I did some session work through um, a guy called Roger King, who who now plays keyboards and produces uh, Steve Hackett. Uh, he was uh, in house engineer at uh, Island Records back then, Island Music, and I got some session work with him. And I did loads of sessions for well, two or three, four or five sessions for different artists that were signed to Island at the time, just doing coming in and doing vocals for them. And I really massively kicked on in terms of moved on in terms of being a singer back then because it really taught me so much and just listening what someone else wanted on their soul which i'd never really you know really experienced that before and it really made me much more professional and in this case um it had been quite a long time since i sung or came up with any uh was asked to sort of come up with any ideas for somebody else's song, but John, you know, as we know, John came up with this um, idea of bouncing it over to me and just said, look, fill your boots, mate, just do what you can, and if you come up with some ideas on it, then great. So um, for me, I, I just jumped to the chance because I, I, the, the original demo I quite liked, but I, I felt, yeah, I can do something with this because um, I know John will understand it, understand me when i say this it was quite busy there was a lot of lyrics in it, and the melody was quite bouncy there was an awful lot going on and i felt straight away when i first heard cherry bomb i thought this needs to be stripped down a bit because actually there's a brilliant song in here that's kind of like waiting to get out almost and it had been it had almost been overdone um yeah, that's how it. I felt about it. And so, yeah, it was a brilliant opportunity for me. So I just, I stripped it down, came up with a few more ideas, took a lot of the melody ideas from John's uh, original demo versions and John's original ideas were were a lot, I didn't really contribute much to the melody. Um, but it was, it was, I, I loved it. I really loved doing it. And in the end, I went bananas with it. I had so many backing vocals on it. <laughs> uh, I just went nuts with it because with my own songs, I don't tend to do that. I kind of tend to just, you know, just uh, write a few. I come up with a few lines and then I harmonise and I do my bits and pieces. But this is a great opportunity for me to go nuts and I really did. So thanks for that.
0: Yeah, there was um, there was quite a few people, comments that have been made about the album, especially about Cherry Bomb, is how catchy yeah. the chorus
2: is. Sweet scented Cherry Bomb, you lied to me.
0: And I think that's absolutely true. And I think somebody did a review of the album. Can't remember the very talented chap's name, but he actually said even the god, goth- even the goddamn backing vocal was actually catchy as well, which actually backs up exactly yeah. what you just said. I was
2: going for a dog walk um, with my little doggy um, at the time, and I just recorded the main vocal um, for Cherry Bowl and I started getting these ideas about um, in the chorus about you know the backing vocal being "You lied to me." and all that stuff. Um, And I was just on a dog walk, and I I could hear it in my head, because I always hear music in my head, as most writers do. And I just got straight back and thought, yeah, I've got something down to remind me that I've come up with that little moment. And I did it, and John went, yeah, I came up with that too. That's exactly what I was thinking. And we were, like, on the (laughs) same, literally on the same in-sheet on this song so much of the time. So it was really good.
0: Once we'd sorted out the... um uh the choruses, the middle age section. Um somebody came up with the idea to have some psychedelic ending of the song, which we'll probably talk about. There's another follow-up question. But I can't remember whose idea it was to come up with spoken words or the story that closes out the song.
1: Yeah, that that that's Stuart's fault. <laughs> <Me> I'd <again. laughs> yeah, I'd hang on. Before you start, Stuff Yeah, my, on my original demo, um, I just extended that ending. I went back it I went back into the middle eight um, chords, but then it faded out after about like twenty seconds, you know. And and I think you must have heard that version and thought, yeah, that can be extended. We could, yes. so we could do something with that. Totally, such you a know?
2: nice musical. That that section is is so musically with the with the mellotrons and everything that Tony had done. I, I I I love that section more than any other
1: part of the song. In Men's that's place. great. I love I love. I just thought this is really derivative it's when you know when you know it's coming it's something yeah. to look forward to isn't it you know if you don't know the song it's a nice surprise but if you do know the song it's like okay the rest is okay but i'm just waiting for that ending because that spoken part ending gets me every time I, every time
2: I, I i remember at the time uh i was sitting down it with um then with my wife claire and um i i said to her I've got an idea for the end of this song. I'm going to do like a spoken, really staffed spoken section. And she went, Really? Are you sure. And I went, Do you know what? I think I could, I think this is going to work. I remember texting you, John, and saying, I've got this idea for this spoken thing. And I said, and I wrote quick, <clears throat> literally about two minutes flat. I just wrote this story down and sent it to you. And you just went, Yeah, go for it. That's just mad. Why not? Yeah. Let's do it. Mm. And so I just went and I went upstairs and recorded it. And, um, uh, just straight away, I don't know where that is.
1: Where that came from, that spoken thing, because I've never ever done that before. Well, don't. we we have to we do have to mention um, the fact that, uh, like in where are the angels, there is a Bowie influence there somewhere. I mean, the spoken ending is kind of uh, you know um, a little bit Bowie, not not as much yeah as, right. as uh, angels, but it's uh, it's just. You know, you just go off on on this little journey, and it's you've got this awesome music behind it.
2: Then this red seagull swoops down beside me, and he says, "What are you doing? You don't belong here." And I say, "No, I belong here." He says, "You dropped the bomb," and I say, "Yeah, that's why I'm here."
0: But how did how did this how did the seagull? Um, coming come into the oh, equation. Yeah.
2: well you know this is quite this is all about where i live i live in dorset and i i'm quite close to the the sea and um i visit the jurassic coast a lot at the time that we recorded this song um and, and that we were we were um we were doing it i was visiting i, I we have a little place down on the coast from overlooking the sea which is like a caravan thing and I was visiting there and um uh you know it just I've always needed to be near water and and all it was was uh coming up with an idea about um a, a drugs trip a druggy trip um we were at the time we were we we sort of Called ourselves, or we we um, used the idea of calling ourselves RGB after after our surnames as as a name for the band. That's the Marto effect. We'd sort of dismissed as an old name, so we'd used RGB uh, as our name at that time. So I wanted to reflect. I just wanted to have some fun with it, so I wanted to reflect red, you know, and green and blue, which were in our sort of logo at the time, in that bit of lyric. And I thought, what what better way to end this song? Than to have a, a trip, and I'm up flying. I'm flying in the sky, and this big red seagull comes down on, and there's a green blue water
1: below me at the blue sky. Well, no Mr. Wow, I've never I've never made that connection. <laughs> never <laughs> made that connection. Yeah, that's but that's brilliant. It's
2: just a bit of fun, really. And then what I've it just got it, it it kicked on a bit from that. But the bit I love most is right at the end when when the seagull starts talking, and this goes back to douglas adams and the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy way back in our youth guys in the early 1980s when we used to love that that whole series i remember there was this talking seagull in this that he had it i think it was a talking seagull or a talking bird and anyway i was having this conversation with this seagull in the air while i was flying over the sea and uh the seagull says um says uh why are you here uh, and i said i oh, Nah, what are you doing you what don't you doing here <laughs> a sorry, yeah, what are you doing here? um have you dropped the bomb? I said, yeah, that's why I'm here And I just thought the minute I wrote it. I just thought, oh my God, I love that it just sums it up perfectly yes, and uh, yeah it was it was what I love about this song loved all along was that it was such a nice opportunity for me to do something I've never done before and mm. it was great, great.
0: Yeah, the ending was sort of so, was sort of almost very Michael Caine.
2: No, I, I
0: purposely.
2: <laughs> I know. Actually, Tony, thank, thanks for mentioning that because I purposely. I don't like the sound of my spoken voice very much. I'm not desperate about my singing voice, but that's another story. But I'm, I've never really liked my spoken voice, and I thought on this, I'm going to use what I would call my normal accent, which is kind of a bit West London, and I again. I mean, in in reference to my great hero Dave 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 Bowie, I do sound a bit like him when I use my when I talk normally because I've got a bit of a London twang about my voice, as you can probably hear now. So I just thought, no, I'm going to sing that I'm going to speak this in my normal voice, which really really scared the crap out of me at the time. But yeah. I'm yeah. glad I did it. Yeah, I remember laughing. No, he did something. Exactly. on Exactly. Yeah. There you go. You see. You know. That's it.
0: I did kind of, um, for me, I remember when the first time I heard the idea about having a spoken bit at the end of the song and storytelling, I think I remember, as you both know, I'm a bit of a pre-Gabriel, well, yeah, Gabriel Genesis yeah. fan, massive oh. Gabriel Genesis fan. But I think actually he came up with a short story which ended up on the sleeve notes or the back of Genesis Live, which was a live album they released sometime in the early 70s. Um, later on, some I think some film director... Um, in Hollywood, actually read it and wanted him to write a script. And this was one of the big arguments they had during the recording of The Lamb Lies uh, Down uh, on Broadway. Because Gabriel went off to Hollywood in the middle of recording, if I've got my story right, um, to talk about writing this script. And the rest of the band were left, I think they recorded it in Hedley Grange at the time, uh, were left just to record huge parts of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway without Peter Gabriel. But that kind of tied Uh, into Cherry Bomb to the 60s or early 70s into this whole sort of prog um, psychedelic feel immediately you, I heard the story and the idea that's thought that came into Do my know, mind
2: the, you're probably, this is probably subliminal because I was a massive Peter Gabriel fan back in the days, still am, still think he's a genius um, it is subliminal, I think you're right I think a lot of, you know I, I can remember listening to um, you know, uh, I know what I like and Gabriel talks at the beginning of that about I'm um, just a lawnmower and all the rest of it So, yeah, there is probably a huge influence in there in terms of writing a a daft bit of prose, like I did from Gabriel. Absolutely, it's a good point.
0: Yeah, another point of inspiration is that lyric, um, there's Howard Hughes in blue suede shoes, smiling at the majorette, smoking Winston cigarettes, which is, uh, again, I I don't know which song that comes from from The Lamb, but it is actually almost spoken rather than sung, isn't it? Because the music just goes really
1: down low. Broadway Melody, I think. Broadway medley, yeah. Melody of something or other.
2: We're talking about someone else's music here. This is not good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
2: as the song and dance begins, yeah. It, it it was
0: it was a storytelling, isn't it? Which I think actually that's one of the good things about Cherry Bomb is actually a yeah. story. And the the whole crazy thing at the end, um, it was just it just works yeah. beautifully, and it ties the whole sort of 60s psychedelic feel of the song. I think it's what John was trying to get across musically, just ties it all in. And I remember I I, I wrote the introduction at the last thing. I remember actually, I always have problems with introductions. I kind of have a half an idea, but I get so excited about developing the choruses and the big sections and the middle eights and the melodies that I sometimes just completely forget the introduction. And I think we'd almost finished the production on this. And I thought, well, the the introduction sounds a bit bland. Um, And I don't know what we had before the beginning of the song. Um, but there was the, there was this other virtual instrument just had this musical box instrument that you just play using a MIDI keyboard. And I always wanted to include it somehow. And then I thought, yeah, this is going to be perfect. This is a bit like up the vicarage, you know, Victorian yeah. England, um, Steve Hackett kind of um, um, feel to the whole song. And then I thought, I'm going to take just the chords from the, the chorus and then play the music, this music box instrument. Um, and I think the first time I sent across a demo um, it just launched straight into the song, and then I thought, oh, what about if it yeah. slows down a bit, like a mechanical box that eventually you wind it up and it plays this tune, and then eventually it just slows down. And I thought that fitted perfectly. But um, and for me, that was after the great ending with the storytelling about the um about the seagull. I think it needed yeah. something at the front, and yeah, I think that's yeah. one of the last things I did on production on that, the that song.
1: That was a, a genius idea. Um, do you remember when the first the first take? The first version you did with that musical box, you put uh, Stuart's vocals mixed up to Mickey Mouse <laughs> yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: oh god, I'm guilty as charged. I couldn't. I just listened to it. I thought, no, I don't. I
1: really, don't. I, I I I just sounded like the chipmunk. I know I couldn't do it. I just, I, felt I it. I thought it was okay, but you know, I mean, uh, you had to have the final say on that, Stuart i'm sorry yeah it would have been fun but
2: um i just couldn't deal with it i just i as i said before i i do struggle listening like and most singers are the same you struggle listening to your own voice you don't really want to listen to it because you don't think you're that good you don't think you've done it right or you think there's so much room for improvement listening to myself turned up two octaves and sat like city on acid you know it's like not city the other one well anyway um yeah, it was like a bridge too far for me.
0: <laughs> uh, there was, um, there was a there were the, there was a song by Kenny Loggins. I can't remember. I don't know how I ended up listening to Kenny Loggins, but when I was living in the states, he had a huge hit with a song, um, and it was played on the radio almost endlessly over there. Um, and it starts off with I think his six-year-old child who just sings the lyric yeah. to the beginning of um the chorus or the verse, and then it kicks into the song, and that's where I tried to get the inspiration. So I thought along with the musical box it would have been nice to have a child's voice, perhaps if we'd have just could have found somebody who was, you know, a daughter or someone who could have just sung the first few lines, but with an authentic child voice. So that's why I tried to, if you like, turn Stuart into a (laughs) six-year-old. But as you say, it it just didn't work. Well, he's there
2: mentally anyway. Another great favourite band of mine from years ago, The Smiths, Um, Johnny Marr produced the, the God Save the Queen album, and... There's a song on that called Big Mouth Strikes Again and in the chorus of Big Mouth you hear this sort of really very similar high voice to what you had Tony for the beginning of Cherry Bowl uh, singing backing vocals and at the time everyone went who the hell's that? What, what is that? But Ma had basically as producer done what you did. He'd, he'd switched up Morrissey's vocal up a couple of octaves and put it through some sort of sequence or something. And Morrissey being much more sort of sensible than me said yeah that's fine johnny I, I can deal with that if it had been me i would have gone no no i don't want to it i don't like it i don't like it because i'm not very crea- uh, creative like that i could i could have lived with it but yeah. um you know
0: i got a question for you john um if you actually hadn't developed it, it with us how do you think it might have turned out if it had been a drums and wires or an arm song or developed I don't else.
1: think I don't think it would have made any drums and wires releases no Ray Ray was never particularly enamored with it and um we had loads of other stuff to choose from you know it was uh, in demo form it was almost 7 minutes long with all the extra verses and choruses that Stuart chopped out uh, and then made up with with his spoken part but um it ended up about a seven minutes song anyway, didn't it? Or oh, something.
0: yeah, because I noticed this. I noticed this with some of the songs you, you write, some of them are just like power exactly, songs, yeah. and then suddenly, uh, you just come out with these sort of, I wouldn't say whimsical, but I don't want to go too much. It's not a drums and wire podcast, but um, there are some sort of like I want to yeah. see the sun and all of, um, all of, all of this, of this right. time. What's that song All of called? this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, they could have. Um, uh, the, the, they're just completely different to some of the other songs you've had written. I, so,
1: had I had more um, control over it, I don't think. I think all of this time, and I want to see the sun. I probably wouldn't have planned that album. Um, I would have probably saved them for such an occasion like Cherry Bomb, where I'm um, giving it to you and Stuart, and said we can do stuff with this. Because they're kind of mid-paced musical um, pieces, you know, that um, that need a lot more love than a three-piece band can basically do. We 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 we
0: talked about this on we talked about this on a podcast, um, an interview with Smudge uh, Darren Smith. But um, I'll always have there'll always be a place in my heart for Cherry Bomb because it was the song that really got us back together. And kicked us on to finish the entire album because without repeating ourselves, uh, we wrote Angels. We kind of worked on it, and then we had a bit of a break for a year and a half. Yeah. Can't remember. Um, and then you and I worked on Cherry Bomb. You said I've got this song, and you sent it over to me. And then we started to talk about it, and then I just developed the music. And then when we had the bones of it together, then we actually then said, "Well, Stuart, do you fancy singing this?" And then that just kicked off yeah. the whole. Um, flow and led to all the other songs, and it got Stuart
1: writing as as well. After doing one of my songs, he said, "Right, I'm going to better this. I'm going to I'm going to do some writing myself." And he ended up writing the other six songs with you on uh on the album. Which uh yeah, Cherry Bomb is not my favourite song on the album. You know, that's all I say. You know, but uh,
0: well, we did a recent yeah. poll, and um, although we didn't get many votes because let's face it, we we're, we're not which is a small band that no one's heard of but um it did actually um did actually get quite a few well, votes see. it does resonate with a lot of people but um yeah I I think that's why I'll always I'll always like the song yeah. from that point of view because it actually kicked us off sure, yeah. kicked us on and the fact that and and the fact that after that we didn't get a look in writing any more songs cuz Stuart wrote them all was you know <laughs> neither
1: he <laughs> was I feel guilty there. about
2: it I really do but but is it was on the oh. end of the day you know um All I would say is that for me, uh, Cherry Bomb is uh, really really and truly, for me, it's the most exciting song on the album. It's certainly different because, as you said, you know, a lot of the other material I did come up with, um, but... um, it's unusual and i really love doing it because it's something i wouldn't normally have done i wouldn't not you know i'd never have written or even attempted to think well this is this of. is what collaboration is all about yeah. isn't it nice it's, it's it's fabulous and it it deservedly the other great thing about it is that it sits brilliantly on the dark side of the album between angels and i can yeah. see Your the face there's no other place it could have gone mm. and it works so well between those two songs because we'll talk about I Can See Your Face next week when we do the next podcast. Yeah. It just, honestly, it is perfect. And I have a, really, it's a really special song for me. And for same reason as Tony said, it brought us all back into this place where we suddenly thought, yeah, we can do this. And it did kick me on. It inspired me and made me think, yeah, I need to write some more music. And I did. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. Fantastic. All for the good.
0: There was one question, John. I remember in the last podcast, we talked about your bass lines following vocal melodies. Um, One of my favourite parts of the album, I can't remember, I think it actually comes out of the pre-chorus or the end of the verse. And this is very intricate bass line. There's lots of notes going all over the place. And I tried to follow it a little bit with some of the staccato strings and some of the other instrumentation I wrote around it. But... um, was was that inspired by a vocal, or was that just um, you jamming jamming along and thinking I'm going to make do this complicated? Do you mean the part
1: where it it in between verses, where the, it goes do doo-doo-doo-doo, do 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 like that?
0: Um, I think it, without singing, it goes do 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 I'm thinking about angels again. The trouble is, it's just there's so many bass lines oh, that no, sound no, the same. No, of course, cherry bomb. Yep. Yeah, Kel- where, where it
1: goes into the bridge before the chorus where it goes, uh yeah. and now I guess come flirting. Yeah, 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 that bit. Yeah, yeah well exactly that, yeah. that was kinda like Angels. Um I thought I would put something off the beat, you know? Not not the root notes, just a, a little run that actually follows the chord structure but is actually not on the beat. Um I'm it's one of my bass tricks that i've done on countless songs you know i just get the idea that i mean you know most of the time through the through the verses and that on that on this song i'm playing the root notes and it's very sort of following the bass drum and uh making it kind of uh quite a smooth feel but then when it goes to that bridge section before the choruses um that's when i that's when i kind of Mix it up a bit and, and it's a it's a bass counter melody, really. No, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah.
0: And I remember actually because that's how I came up with the idea for these brass stabs. So I li- I quite like brass um in a bit of music and I've used it quite a lot on the album. Um it appears in other songs. At the end of um uh Born to Be Free, where we go into the orchestral bit, I've got some of these sort of like slow brass melodies in the background, but the end of that bass riff before it goes into the chorus there was a gap and i thought it was perfect just to slam in some kind of um some brass um blast right yeah 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 and actually it was immediately i heard that bass line and there was a gap there isn't it it's like this bit of a pause before it goes into the chorus and i thought i've got i've got to fill that gap and i just thought yeah okay i've been in fire yeah, we'll stick some brass in there. Um, also, funny enough, inspired, uh, inspired a bit by Madness, because, I mean, that's something they use a lot in their songs. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's I lots mean, of horns I, I and brass. Know,
1: but it, it kind of harks back to the feel of the song that uh, that reminds me of something off Sergeant Peppers, because you've got, like, you know, like, got to get you into my life with the horns and sta- the horn stabs. And, uh, and, and you know, they they're just there in certain parts of the song. You know, they don't dominate the song. But it's um yeah I love a bit of brass.
0: Well, there's a link actually. Funny you should mention. Got to get you into my life because I recently saw a documentary where McCartney said that's not about women or anything. He was talking about they had they liked marijuana or drugs yeah. and they had to get them into their life. And McCartney admitted admitted you see that that was why he wrote the song. Got to get you into my life. Um yeah and that's the link with Cherry Bomb.
1: Yeah, we left-handed bass players have got a certain mindset, mate. I just wish I had his money. Or oh, I could write songs as great as his, but there you go. We can't have it all, can we? No, we can't.
0: I hope you enjoyed our discussion about the making of sweet scented cherry bomb please do join us next week for another episode of the tse podcast until then cheerio